Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be chatting with two people who have been through quite a year. Josh and Wendy Smith are the co-founders of Odd Man Inn, which is a farmed animal sanctuary, and they've recently moved all of their animals from the state of Washington to rural Tennessee. And when they got to rural Tennessee and their new place, they assumed the care of an additional 160 pigs. So they have had, as I said, quite a year. I thought my year was complicated. Yeah, it's this interview is going to kind of blow your mind. It really is. And they're also so wonderful. I, I can't help but notice, too, that like this is sort of the Valentine's Day episode and they are a powerhouse couple. So I, I love that. Go go powerhouse couple. This is such a sweet interview. And also, it's my favorite name of a sanctuary, Odd Man Inn. So could all people celebrating Valentine's Day adopt 160 pigs in order to... Uh, <laughs> in order to- mark the day. That would be good. Oh my God. That would be so much better than that little nugget that you found on Tyson's website. I was searching for rising anxieties, which makes me go on to meet industry websites. You're welcome. Not the best, not the best moment of my life. But yeah, I came across this gem on whatpoultry.com. Tyson shares the love with heart-shaped chicken nuggets. And that, I mean, that's all, that's all this is about. (laughs) They call it the perfect Valentine's gift for loved ones. And they call them nuggets of love. And they have this little package and there's a couple of, a picture with a couple of roses. And then these two heart-shaped chicken, you know, pieces of dead body of a tortured bird. Mm. Uh, rolled in bread. Like, what is wrong with the world? I, you know, I know you can't answer that. I ask that every day. What is wrong with the world? Well, here, I'll tell you. No, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't know. But that is pretty disgusting. But on, in brighter news, I have been seeing vegan chocolate like everywhere. I've just, and also it's, it's, I've been seeing fair trade vegan chocolate in a lot of places, which is, wonderful. But I guess I shouldn't bring up chocolate too much because you you can't really eat it. Yeah, you've reminded me that I've already talked about this on the podcast, so I'm not going to talk about it. But I'm talking, here I am talking about it. I can't eat chocolate because it gives me this weird, like, dizziness thing. I know now you think I'm crazy, but it's true. It's a real thing. Yeah, well. It's like an allergy, I guess, but it's not really an allergy. So we'll make sure that you have a non-chocolate Valentine's Day treat. But for people who, like me, can eat it. I'm sorry, Marianne. And love it like I do. This is your friendly reminder to make sure you know where it's coming from, because as a lot of us already know, a lot of chocolate isn't ethical. And I got a special chance to chat with Lauren Ornelas from Food Empowerment Project this past week. And so let's hear what Lauren has to say about chocolate. There's many ethical issues when it comes to chocolate. Of course, one is being as if it's not vegan chocolate, then it does come from the suffering of non-human animals. There's also some issues regarding deforestation and women's rights and issues like that. But the main thing that we focus on right now is looking at slavery and child labor that is currently going on in the chocolate industry. 
for an organization like Food Empowerment Project, we primarily go based on country of origin for the chocolate. So where is it coming from? Is it coming from an area where slavery and child labor are the most prevalent? And we also have free apps that people can download for the iPhone and Android. But more than not, if you see a package of chocolate and it does happen to disclose the information, if it's coming from Western Africa and if it's coming from Brazil, then more than likely it's coming from areas where slavery and child labor is the most prevalent. And we encourage consumers to reach out to these companies and let them know that they do care. One of the things we like to remind people is to eat their ethics. And when they're about to reach for that chocolate and they don't know where the chocolate sourced from, I would encourage somebody to think about the person that they're buying it for. And is that person going to be concerned about those children or the enslaved people in Western Africa or Brazil? And if they are going to be, maybe they rethink that purchase. I mean, if we have the privilege to buy somebody some chocolate, I think we have some responsibility that comes with that. And that's to make sure that we're adhering to our own values and values that impact people across the globe. Food Empowerment Project does really great work. And I I know that I rely on their list when I'm shopping for chocolate. If I was able to buy chocolate, I would rely on their list too. I guess I am able to buy it. I'm just not able to eat it. And why should I buy it for anybody else? But I digress. Well, thank you, Lauren. And thank you, Food Empowerment Project. And thank you, everyone out there for supporting, you know, ethical food consumption and, and friend purchasing. So we got an email from a listener. This is a, this is a change in subject. We got an email from a listener, Robert Jensen, about squalene oil. Do you know what squalene oil is? I have never heard of it, but you seem to be very familiar with it because of your work with Kinder Beauty. Right. It has something to do with cosmetics, but it's a huge, huge, big deal. Yeah, it was squalene with a E-N-E, was traditionally harvested from shark liver and it's just horrible. I mean, I don't even understand when someone was like, I know, let's harvest shark liver and see if it's good for our face or complexion. I know. Did somebody like come across a dead shark and say, oh, there's the liver. I think I'll rub it across my face and see how it, how, how I look. I'm going to read this from Robert's email. It's a little hard to read, but stick with me. Amaris, which is this company... I'm I'm just going to interrupt myself already. We're going to link to this in the show notes. Amaris essentially creates strains of yeast to produce just about any organic compound they like and then feed the yeast sugarcane in bioreactors to create the target compounds at industrial scale. One of their biggest products that's come out in the last few years is Squalane, that's A-N-E, which has super moisturizing properties for skin and hair and therefore is used as a premium ingredient in many cosmetics. Squalane was previously primarily sourced from deep sea shark livers. Amaris estimates 2.7 million sharks were killed each year. Jeez, 2.7 million sharks just for this, you know, like animal, animal exploitation just never ends. Like who would have got something I've never heard of? Yeah. But you've also never heard of this alternative. So it's nice that you're hearing about it when you're hearing about the alternative. So so the 2.7 million sharks were killed each year to meet the global demand for squalane. Now Amaris estimates they supply 50% of the global squalane market, all sourced from sugarcane and yeast. And as Robert says in his email, it's like lab meat, but for sharks. And so we thought we would mention this because it is a bit of hopeful news. And I love I love that this is kind of 
paving the way for what other exploitative industries can do by replacing exploitative products. No, totally, because obviously it must be cheaper because they wouldn't be doing this out of the goodness of their hearts because they care about sharks. And they're up to 50% of the market. That's amazing. Yes. It does give you hope. And you know, giving me hope is a hard, hard sell. Okay, so we have some exciting news. We have launched this incredible new community called Mighty Networks. Well, we didn't launch Mighty Networks, but Mighty Networks is this amazing community that you'll find our hen house on now. And it's just this almost like a social media channel. It's almost like Facebook, but it's entirely ours and it's totally opt in. We want you to join our Mighty Networks community platform. We want you to join us for an incredible launch party to celebrate it. So recently we announced that our hen house is on Mighty Networks and we are going to have a section that is just for the flock where we'll have some perks behind it. We'll let you know what they are in the coming months. But one will be a new podcast that will be just for members. One will be a book club, office hours, things like that. But we also will have a part of Mighty Networks that is indeed for everybody. And we want you to come to our virtual launch party, which will feature a couple of our favorite vegans, Gene Bauer, who's the president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary, who will be ready to answer all your burning questions, and comedian Mike Kaplan, who is absolutely hilarious, and I completely adore him. And so he will be joining us as well to make us laugh. So it's going to be on February 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern. And we will link to the RSVP location in the show notes that go with this episode. So check that out. But you could also go to ourhenhouse.mn.co to join the community and RSVP in the events tab. So again, it's ourhenhouse.mn, that's like for Mighty Networks, .co to join the community and RSVP. So again, Mike and Jean are going to be there. It doesn't get better than that. No, two of my favorite people. And for totally different reasons. They're just, they're they're not at all the same, but they're both so amazingly good. I can't wait. I think it's going to be a great evening and or afternoon, depending on where in the country you are or where in the world you are. Maybe it'll be morning. So please, yeah, join us. I, I, I really hope everybody does because I'm really off social media. Not, I'm not totally off social media. That's not what I mean. I mean, psychologically, it's really been wearing on me, as I've said before, and I'm not very good at keeping up with it. But so far, I've really been enjoying Money Network. It's kind of like a family, like you kind of get to know everybody and, and comment on each other's posts and you kind of know who it is who's commenting and like kind of conversations start. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Definitely. I'm also feeling really good about today's interview. So I think we should get to that because these people have a lot to say. And I think you're going to love this interview as much as I did. Absolutely. Wendy Smith is the executive director and co-founder of Odd Man Inn Animal Refuge, which is currently located in Jamestown, Tennessee. Born and raised in New Orleans, she is a military veteran and emergency room trauma nurse. Those seems like really good preparations for running an animal sanctuary, I have to say. Both uh, would give you exactly the right skills. Josh Smith is the facility manager and co-founder of Odd Man Inn. Born and raised in Northern Maine, he is a graduate of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University with a personal interest in scroungeering. They will be joining Jasmine right after this. Socrates once said, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. 
As you probably gathered from the opening quote, change is in the air. I've got big, gigantic, enormous, gargantuan news. Here at our hen house, we have been working behind the scenes for a while on a brand new community resource, and we couldn't be more thrilled to announce that it is now live. The Our Hen House community is a new online platform that will enable vegans and activists to connect with one another on our own dedicated social network. No more random social media ads, spam comments telling you about a miracle cure, or worry about your data being used in nefarious ways. Just an amazing community of change makers at your fingertips. We're really looking forward to having you by our side to grow this amazing networking platform into a one-of-a-kind movement resource that we truly believe will be an epic tool in our work to change the world for animals. Head on over to ourhenhouse.mn.co to join us. Again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. We can't wait to connect with you. We'll see you there. Welcome to our hen house, Josh and Wendy. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for having us. I've been really, really excited to talk with you for so many reasons, but we'll get to why as I'm going. So let me first say that I know that you have had quite a year with a lot of changes. So maybe the best place to start telling this whole story is to start at the very beginning and go from there. How did Odd Man In start? Oh, man. Man, I'm in and started in 2016. We lived up in Washington State and uh, and we kind of just started like backyard animal loving vegans who wanted to help some animals that were out of options. And, you know, and lo and behold, when you go looking for animals who are in desperate situations, you can find them pretty darn easily. And it felt like we blinked our eyes and we had 60 animals on our small property of like three and a half acres. Yeah, we didn't have any like intention of really starting anything like a farmed animal sanctuary. When we moved out there, we bought some land to help a dog, Roswell, that needed space and needed to be away from people. And then while we were out there, Wendy was like, well, maybe we could help some goats. And then there were goats and maybe we could help some chickens. And then there were chickens. And then Wendy said... <laughs> Wendy said, hey, I don't know if I want to go through life without a pig friend. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that was when we were like, there seems to be a real need, right? We still didn't know that there was this whole, you know, groups of farmed animal sanctuaries. We were just kind of doing our thing in the woods in Washington. And then when we started looking, it was like, wow, this is really something. There was like a whole community of people who are doing this. And so we we came up with like, I can remember we were on our way to pick up our first rescued pig. And that's when we came up with the name Odd Man Yen. And we're like, we could kind of be like a little farm sanctuary, right? Like we were so just doe-eyed about the whole thing. And <laughs> so we took in our first pig. She still lives with us today. Her name is Bailey. She's a little pot belly. And at the time, we were funding ourselves my overtime shifts as an emergency room nurse. And, oh, wow. Yeah, I remember when we'd be working and we had this Honda element, right? We called it the smell element to move animals around, but also it was Wendy's work vehicle. And Wendy worked far enough away that she couldn't safely work overtime, get back, get the rest, and then go back to the hospital. And they didn't offer nurses sleeping area. So- in our first couple of years, 
when Wendy was working overtime, she'd camp in the parking lot at the hospital in the elevator. Oh. Yeah, yeah the, smell of the same vehicle that we would transport animals to and from the vet. And, <laughs> and as we started taking animals in, we realized that as you're taking in animals that are in bad situations or being given away, they typically have medical needs. Mm-hmm. And my background as a nurse really drew me towards helping animals who had more significant medical need. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not even that it requires expensive surgery or a specialist. It's that they just need basic care. And if they don't get basic care, they end up with problems that are not fixable. And Bailey was a great example of that. Her hooves were curled up like wizard shoes. She could barely mm-hmm. walk. And she was a young girl. All she needed was some hoof care. And so as the veterinary bills, we started getting a grasp on how expensive that was and how many overtime shifts I had to work for that. That was when we started thinking, I wonder if we could be a nonprofit. I wonder if people would actually donate to help us with this work. And uh, an odd man in was born. Amazing. We did that for five years, almost six years in Washington. And when you say we had a lot of changes this year, that the big change was we took over a sanctuary here in Tennessee and we moved our entire sanctuary from Washington state to middle Tennessee. And we took over a herd of 159 pretty large pigs. Wow. And so we currently have approximately 200 animals on the property here and we fully moved our entire operation from Washington to Tennessee. With when we started the day before you receive your 501c3 termination letter and the day after everything changes because once you start like taking animals then locally you become a place where everybody's trying to give you animals right yeah and quickly we had to move away from owner surrender animals i mean that call is every day right someone can't keep doesn't want sad stories divorce forces give up animals you name it right it's across mm-hmm. the board but also as soon as you are known across the country for that 501c3 determination on whatever lists pop up, then in the morning you wake up to calling from Sacramento, have 750 guinea pigs in a hoarding yeah. place, 122 pigs in Massachusetts, how many can you take? It really escalates to things like law enforcement cases, seizures, the really, really sad stuff starts coming at you quickly. Well, I mean, not to get super sad, but obviously there is a super sad element to all of this. So can you tell me a little bit more about where the animals are coming from? Like what's their, some of their origin stories? Yeah, sure. Uh, We had a variety of cases up in Washington. We worked really closely with animal control up there. You know, it was cases where animals were being, I mean, literally starved, tied up in a yard with no food and no fresh water. And thankfully, somebody would report that to animal control. And animal control would go out and say, this is completely unacceptable, right? These animals are being taken into custody. And and animal control is typically dogs and cats. They take farmed animals as much as they can. Some counties will. But in a lot of cases, those animals, they are rescued, quote unquote, from a bad situation and taken to auction because there is no place for them to go. There's physically no safe place for them to go. 
And so we had a pretty good network in Washington, just because we were there longer, where we worked with animal control and took in some of those cases like Magpie, right? We had this beautiful goat named Magpie who she was one of those cases tethered in the yard. Her hooves had never been trimmed. They were literally, literally Jasmine, like three to four feet. Oh, my God. It was incredible. She couldn't walk like that. And so animal control took her in and and they were like, we don't even know what to do with this. Right? They had to take a sawzall to remove her excess hoof. And her legs were twisted and deformed. Like she needed a long-term course of rehabilitation just to even see if she was going to be able to have a good quality of life after surviving something like that. And I'm so happy to say she not only like has a great quality of life, we found her a great home where they continue mm-hmm. to take care of her hooves. They're, they do specialized care with her. It's amazing. It's an amazing wow. turnaround. In some cases, they're sad situations, yes, but we try really hard to find like those cases where we can help animals retrieve their, we call it their sanctuary babe status, right? We want them to have all of the things that they need, medical care and good feed and good quality nutrition and care for their skin and specialized care when they need it. And I'm happy to say we've had a lot of success stories with that. That is so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the sanctuary movement fascinates me because it is, we only need a sanctuary movement because of all the exploitation and commodification and sadness. But then it leads to all of this beauty and hope and inspiration. Can you tell me about any animals who you particularly have connected with? Along with what you just said, First thing to realize is we're hoping to all put ourselves out of business, right? We're like a trainer at the gym. You're hoping that yeah. no one needs your services. And that's the ultimate, right? Is that a place like Odd in would have no need to exist. And instead, we'd be growing beets and pineapples, right? So that's what we hope in the short term, not the long term. As far as some of the beautiful side of things and, and sort of the strange side of things is a few months ago, I came home and Department of Homeland Security was in our yard. (laughs) Okay, what's going on? And this gentleman gave me a card and he said, the sheriff's deputy in this county in East Tennessee wants to talk to you folks and wanted to see that you were a legitimate animal sanctuary. And we're like, Okay. Which, you know, like kudos to them, right? For doing their research. Right, right. They actually sent a representative to make sure the place looked legitimate. Yep. And so we're like, what is going on? And it turns out that there was in in an Eastern County, there was a potbelly pig that was running loose. It happens all the time, right? Where people abandon them, they escape. There are potbellies everywhere that get abandoned. And this pig, Francis... She had made a route around a neighborhood. She learned if mm-hmm. I go house to house to house at this place, I'll get a meal. And over here, I'll get some strawberries. And then she went next door to the cemetery and she'd have a good scratch on the headstones over there. And she'd dig herself a nice nest in the cemetery. And the wow. alerted the sheriff. So, you know, you can imagine rural Tennessee and three pigs running loose and mm-hmm. where Francis's fate could lie. And instead... This sheriff told the deputies to go out by the gun range, which in this area is out past the dog shelter, the dump, the motor pool, right? Yeah. It's like a mile down a dirt road. He said, build her a house. 
And so it wasn't close to where they were shooting. It was just out on the gun range property. But they went out there, they built her a house, and they packed it with straw. And the sheriff's orders were, make sure she gets food and water every day. And Mm. even in the middle of February in snowstorms, at the end of your sheriff's deputy shift, you had to then take the charger out through the dirt road and take warm water and oftentimes tacos or lasagna to Francis. Now, oh my gosh. these guys admittedly did not know care for pigs, right? Francis loves lasagna. What? However, they took care of Francis for over two years. They fed her, they sheltered her, they made sure that she was safe. They could have done any variety of really bad things with Francis, and instead they were kind to her. And when wow. when the sheriff didn't get reelected, the deputies all realized we have to find a home for Francis. Like the sheriff oh. has been the person spearheading this whole Francis situation. And so they contacted us. They not only sent the Homeland Security people to make sure we look legit, but then they contacted us and asked for help with Francis. So when you ask about, I think your initial question was, Stories where we connect, right? I think the more important thing is those beautiful stories where we see people in the community that you wouldn't expect to connect with animals. That is so Mm -hmm. beautiful to us. And it is kind of the heart of what we are doing when we are educating and talking about our work is trying to help not only educate people, but help them find ways to connect with animals of different species so that when they sit down to have a meal, they think about those animals. And like that, that is a great story of, of seeing these people. They still check on her. They still text us and check in to make sure Francis is doing okay. Yeah, I think that in micro view, I guess, is that Francis has a great home. She's losing weight. She was way overweight. She couldn't be anymore. And we're working on her diet and she's doing pig stuff and has a buddy, right? But in the bigger vision of what we all are trying to achieve here is we stay in contact with guys who, you know, it's it's the generic macho talk, right? And big muscular guys with crew cuts. And what we do is we keep our contact. We've already invited those guys out to come out in the uh, in the spring or summer to see Francis, check in on Francis, let us throw a cookout, right? So we can have a Beyond Burger cookout. And then we mm-hmm. get to take these guys for a walk and be like, okay, now let's talk about this. You guys absolutely love your dogs. You chose Francis to be saved for some reason. Now let's talk about why these other animals that you see out here that you're ooing and eyeing over don't have those same rights or those same attitudes, right? So it really gives us an opening to have dialogue activism. Hmm. I have talked to a lot of sanctuary people, I'll call them, and I get answers all across the board for like how forthright are you with that kind of messaging? There are people who tell me we just exist and the animals sort of speak for themselves and people make the connections. And then there are sanctuary people who draw the connections a little bit more clearly and say, okay, you love your dogs. What's the difference? So tell me a little bit about how you decided what your tact will be. And if that tact changes, depending upon who you're speaking with. Well, that's a great question. I mean, we could talk an hour on, on what you just said, because what you have to remember is very few organizations 
are sitting on a massive trust fund. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, it is a fine balance in getting the word out, right? And how much in your face you want to be with the realization that we still have to feed a thousand pounds of food, right? We use a thousand pounds in the cold winter every day. Wow. The costs, the vet costs, right? they're monumental. And so if someone is in a town in, say, eastern Washington state, and they're out there and they're in the middle of town screaming that everyone should be vegan, which would be awesome, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Like just up on a log, just like yelling facts and trying to get things, right? But you do need to have community support. And what we have found is community support comes from having very controlled scientific discussions about things like where does milk come from? When people say things to us like, well, these animals were put here for our use. Our response is always the same. These animals weren't even put here. They're made through the ego and greed of people trying to make money from them. There are no 900 pound pink pigs running around the Serengeti in Africa, right? So we have those discussions and stand our ground and then maintain the relationships, especially the business relationships, because our animals need those business relationships. What I can't have is a feed supplier saying, we're not going to deliver to you, right? Hmm. First thing in the morning, those 200 animals have to eat every day, right? So And, that, and we do have to be respectful of the community that we have moved into. We moved from we moved from southern Washington, which is really close to Portland, Oregon. It's like vegan Mecca there. There are a lot of animal sanctuaries. There is a huge vegan community. It is not it is not considered out there to be mm -hmm. vegan or to be an animal activist. And and we knew that coming here to rural Tennessee, we live in a really small town that has approximately 1800 people. The community in general, it's all animal agriculture farmers. And so we knew that coming here, we were coming to an area where animals really needed advocates. They needed like smart, savvy advocates who were not going to run off the few resources that they do here. We were in fact going to create more resources for them. And it is challenging. It's challenging from our perspective, just as two vegans living in Tennessee, but also challenging to try and find those resources in a community that is so small and that, and where veganism is very much a foreign concept. But it's important. Yeah. Yes, we want to have open dialogue with people and we want to make sure that that we're not missing opportunities to educate people on facts and science around animals and agriculture. But also we, we do have to be respectful of the fact that if the feed supplier gets angry with us and says, we're not serving you anymore, our animals are in trouble. And that that is our, our primary goal is we have to take care of the animals that are relying on us for those resources. Wow. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that people who choose to work or maybe not choose to work, but find themselves working in animal advocacy, especially directly like you are, because, you know, 
animals happen. It's like you get sort of a honorary doctorate in psychology or something because you have to like work with the person in front of you. Is that person a possible donor? Is that person a possible rabble rouser? Is that person a possible ally? Is this anything that your former lives as a nurse, as a military person prepared you for? I think as a nurse, absolutely. I've been a nurse for almost 25 years and I currently work, I still work and I work as an emergency and trauma room nurse. And that is a really interesting lesson in psychology, every single shift that I work. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from nursing that I apply to animal advocacy is you you have to read your audience. You have to understand pretty quickly what their education level is, what their interest level is, find out what makes them tick, and then Mm -hmm. alter, as a nurse, I would just alter my education points based on what is going to stick with that person the best. And it's the same concept, right? It's, It's just like teaching 101, but for me, I usually do it in a hospital, not not in a a classroom. So so yeah, I think that working as a nurse definitely helps me just with reading the audience because there are some people who, as you start talking to them, you realize like this conversation is going to escalate and get inflammatory really quickly. And that is not where I want it to go. That is not helpful. That is not beneficial. People shut down on you when they start to feel defensive and angry about what you're educating them on. Mm-hmm. And so I think that my tactic, just based on my background, my tactic is a, is much more I'll circumvent the problems to try and figure out this, the problems in communication to try and figure out how can I get my message in there without shutting down this person who is maybe not super receptive to the message. Josh is a little bit more direct than I am. And that's not bad. We just, we use, we sort of use each other as differing tools based on the audience that we have. This is a better one for you. This is a better one for me, right? Our personalities are just very different and suited to different styles of visitors and guests. Yeah, I think that um, what you have to have first before you start any discussion with anyone, right, is your absolutes. And we are not flexible on our absolutes. And I'll give you an example. Just this morning, I had to run down to the hardware store. And so I'm waiting at the counter and the gentleman next to me is waiting at the counter. And he says, looks like the communists are really taking over in Washington. (laughs) Good morning. Not a, I don't know your name, right? Like, uh, just looks like the communists are taking over. And and he goes, I I don't know what we're going to do about it. And I said, well, sir, you don't know me, but I said, I'm not a citizen who's for sale. And I believe that your health care is more important to me as an American than a corporate dollar. And mm. I don't know how that fits into communism. This is all before eight o'clock in the morning. Unbelievable. <laughs> wow. No wonder when I asked you during our sound test, I said, what did you have for breakfast? You kind of started laughing. And now I understand why, because that conversation is what you had for breakfast. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I am a political and probably moral polar opposite to this human, right? But what we do have to do is find ways to have discussions that can show some parallel interest. And then we start with, okay, then why do you believe this? This is why I believe this. Yeah. And that doesn't mean 
that you have to cater to someone else's beliefs, especially in cases where I think it does harm to our brothers and sisters, be that animals or human. Right. I don't have to accept that opinion, right? But my job is to find a way if someone says to me, like here in this town, it's, it's a very religious town. And if someone says to me, well, God put these animals here for you. My discussion is always the same, which is, I'd like to counter that with, if one day you believe your God is going to judge you before you get through the gates of heaven, and you say you chose not to exploit, consume, or abuse your God's perfect creations, and we both agree that these creations are perfect, isn't that mm -hmm. true? And the people are always like, yes, then you will not be cast out of heaven for not destroying God's creatures. Right. And over, I hear the same thing, which is, no one's ever said anything like that before. Oh my in, gosh. In this town, right? Now realize, you know, it's a very closed community, right? It's generations and generations. And so we've got to be prepared for those discussions and not back down from those discussions. But as soon as we put someone on the defense, just like you, just like me, we dig our heels in and then it goes nowhere. Yeah. And wow. it, we, it, it goes nowhere and we potentially lose resources that we need to take care of the animals here. I can tell you a case where there was a sanctuary that needed hay. Uh, they, they weren't buying their hay from the gentleman who had a hay farm across the street. Across the street, right? Throw a baseball to the pile of hay. They needed a few tons of hay to get by. The guy refused. I'm not going to sell you my hay. You've got all those animals over there that you're wasting. Oh my God. And so if you live amongst that, right, it is very fortunate for activists who, who have chosen to live in, in cities and have a large population of like-minded people. Yeah. It is very challenging to be in a rural place where, where a veterinarian says, we do not share the same philosophical beliefs about animals. Therefore, I'm not going to treat your animals as my patients. Right. Right. Wow. Oh, there's a lot there. I have a few follow-up questions that occurred to me while you were talking. First of all, Wendy, just going back to you for a second. So being a nurse, I, one of my best friends who's vegan and is also an emergency room nurse, and she draws a lot of parallels between being a nurse, especially an emergency room nurse, and being a vegan and an animal advocate. But you have this added layer where you're running a sanctuary and you're caring for these animals. And I guess I'm just wondering where you put it all and like what you do to also take care of yourself in the mix of this, because both of these things by themselves would warrant my asking this. But these two things together, I just want to kind of hug you. <laughs> Don't hug. I, I'm not a hugger. I'm not really. Okay. I'll, I'll like, hi, I want to high five you, Wendy. <laughs> oh. let, let me give you a short answer real quick and then you answer. Okay. But, All right. Uh, because I think this is important. Right? Okay. Even though Wendy's a great nurse and I've had that firsthand, right? There's plenty of times where I'm not taking time to go to an ER because Wendy can fix most things, right? But being a nurse is her job, right? Whereas what she does out here, she's said to me before, just between the two of us, that it is her dream. And so like the caring, sure, there's sadness, right? There's a lot of hard work. Last week at Windchill 27 Below Zero was awful. Right? Wow. But I see Wendy go up and kneel down in front of Jolene and be like, good morning, beautiful Jolene, how are you? Mm. Those are two 
completely different yeah. attitudes and jobs that share similarities. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, being a nurse comes as a second nature to me now. It it does not drain me emotionally. I don't. I mean, yes, it's a high it's a high energy, a high adrenaline job to work as a trauma nurse. But when you've done it for so long, it's like riding a bike. I I don't leave when I leave work and I punch the clock. That's it. I'm done, right? I give my job my all. And when I punch out, that's it. I'm finished. Hmm. When I work here with the animals, even though a, a good degree of it is nursing care and tending and caregiving, again, it it does not drain me. I don't feel like, I don't feel like this job takes from me. I feel like when we can take in an animal, rehabilitate them, get them physically well, watch them thrive. All that does is, you know, people use that, that phrase, like, does it take from your cup or add to your cup? And to me, I'm like, it just adds to my cup. It does not okay. make me feel exhausted. And so, I mean, I'm an introvert by nature. And so when you ask, how do I take care of myself? I'm just quiet. Like I mm -hmm. watch something ridiculous on Netflix before bed. Every night. I turn my brain off. I heat up my little buckwheat pillow and crawl in the bed with the cat. And that's it. I feel good, right? That's that is enough for me. Now, I mean, would I one day like to see Africa? Yes, I would. I would really like to see, I would really like to be able to at some point in our life still be able to do some other things outside of the sanctuary, but we have made these choices together with eyes wide open. We knew what we were getting into. Maybe in the first couple of years we didn't quite know what we were getting into. We did not intend for it to really take over our entire lives. But once we realized how big the need was and we realized how much good that we could do, not only for animals, but also as educators and animal rights advocates, I was like, I don't think we can say no to this. I don't think that we can walk away from this and feel good about leaving that opportunity on the table where we mm -hmm. can build something and create something that causes so much good. So in terms of taking care of myself, people ask me that a lot. And I feel like I'm good. I don't feel drained by this work. Do I feel tired? Mm. Yes. I'm, I'm almost 46 years old. And I mean, the bales of hay seem to get heavier every year. But we fully realize that, that there is a limit to how much we are going to be able to do in our lifetime. And so the majority of our planning for the last year and a half and a big focus of our planning is succession planning for the organization, realizing that we have to put that in place before we are either too old or too injured or too broke down to be able to do this work anymore. We wear a lot of hats for Odd Man In. And you know, I'd venture to say we are, between the two of us, we are holding probably eight different job descriptions yeah. Per person. Which is what everyone else does, right? Yes. I mean, everyone has another Absolutely. But we realize that as we build our succession plan, we have to put people in place that are appropriate for those different roles. Well, about the succession plan, I did want to ask you about that, especially given the fact that you took over a sanctuary, which I'm a little fuzzy on that. We don't have to get into it, but I am curious if you could speak a little bit more about 
the importance for sanctuaries specifically, or really anyone who cares for animals. How important is it to plan for leadership transitions? Is this a common problem? Yeah. It's a very common problem. Very common. And, and it's, I mean, it's so vitally important. It, it's almost like before you even take in your first animal, you better know where that animal is going to go if something happens to you. Because, I mean, even like working as a trauma nurse, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you blink your eyes and you're suddenly immobilized. So <sighs> you have to have plans in place for that. And people who are trained and funding in the bank for the animals and a safe home for them and make sure that you know exactly who is going to take over the checkbook if you disappear tomorrow. And the way I usually phrase it is, if I vaporize tomorrow, this is going here, this is going there, this person is in charge of this, this person is in charge of that. And our plan is not perfect, but we have worked really hard and diligently to make sure there are people involved in the organization who will know how to manage those things if something were to happen to the two of us. Yeah. Well, along the lines with that is even the land itself, right? So when we were in Washington, we were the landholders, Wendy and Joshua Smith. But at this property, our house is at the end of the road. We live a few thousand feet away. And Odd Man Inn purchased this property. And that's very important for anybody listening, right? Because if Odd Man Inn can work hard over the term of this mortgage and pay its mortgage, then these animals cannot be evicted. Right. And then in part of our succession planning was how do we make sure that they're never without water? And we worked on that last week in the emergency when our entire county didn't have water service. We had to pump water out of our ponds. And that was part of our emergency plan and taking over this property is if the animals can pay for their property, they can't be evicted. If you have the means mm-hmm. to get water out of the ponds, just an RV pump, they will never die of dehydration. And the worst case scenario is you walk throughout your town asking people to empty their refrigerators of scraps in a very dire situation, right? And that's part of our succession also was laying down the the property to be ready for whomever takes over next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it is good to know, especially given all that you have gone through in building out your sanctuary now. And I honestly, I'm still kind of thinking about the Washington to Tennessee uh, move. Just logistically, how did you manage that? Just tell us a little bit about what that move itself was like. There's no, like, unfortunately, there's no blueprint for that, right? As we, as we even considered moving down here to Tennessee, it's not like you can Google that, you know, how do I move an animal sanctuary from one state to another? and they're 2,700 miles apart. And so we we knew that the move was going to be difficult. We knew that it was going to take time. The, probably the most difficult part of that is that we technically had to run two sanctuaries at the same time while we moved the animals from Washington to Tennessee. Right. And the Tennessee animals really needed a lot of care. It wasn't like it wasn't like it was a turnkey operation. They needed vaccinations. We had 68 female pigs that needed to be spayed. We had quite a few injuries and illnesses that we had to take care of. And so uh, so our initial plan was we're going to divide and conquer. One of us will stay in Washington and one of us will go to Tennessee. Probably over about a year and a half is what we first started. Wow. This will probably take about a year and a half, you know, until expenses 
<laughs> start yeah. showing themselves. Yeah, and 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 we knew that we were we knew that we wanted to expand out of Washington. Our property, as we said, it was our own private property. It was only three and a half acres, and and at the time we had we had too many animals on three and a half acres. We knew that we were going to have to have bigger property. Let, let me correct that a little bit because you said expand out of Washington. Not we didn't necessarily want to leave Washington. We just like for the health of the land and for the animals and not being in a position where we would have had to create enrichment, right? Like give the goats a Buick to crawl on. We were like, we need to have a bigger facility. And with that bigger facility, it opens up much more on advocacy for tours and education, right? Walking two and a half minutes across our entire property in a tour doesn't really uh, accomplish what we were trying to do in education. Right. And in Washington, we had we had a volunteer crew that worked with us and it was 60 volunteers working with us seven days a week on just three and a half acres of property. And like, this is a lot of people, right? Like we had a regular volunteer crew that was there every day. Not all 60 was there every day. No, not all 60. Mm -hmm. No. But my point is we knew that we wanted to, to purchase larger property for the sanctuary what we didn't want to do is go to a place where we're like, okay, like we're in, I don't know, New Mexico and there is a water issue there, right? We looked at some properties, you know, in the Southwest and we're like, I don't know, this feels dangerous, right? And the whole West Coast, every year they're talking about the fire risk on the yep. <laughs> to evacuate entire sanctuaries. So we knew that we wanted to get away from the fire risk. And, and when this, this opportunity came up in Tennessee, I was like, we should maybe consider this. I, Tennessee is it's a difficult area to move an animal sanctuary into. And we already talked about you know resources and the community and the different mindset here. But in terms of water and fire risk, we were like, that's pretty good, right? Those are actually in the pro column for doing right. this. We put those into our discussion, right? Is like, what are what we now have to call, uh, I guess, legacy disasters, right? Fire, mm. hurricane, tornado, earthquake, blizzard. Yep. Uh, we're pretty low on that stuff. Now, it's a whole new realm that we're talking about how we have to fight local climate change, deluges and erosion, such like that. Right? But in, in or once in a generation storms right. that pop up. But in coming to Tennessee, when we're talking about the potential for that and, and bringing our organization here, we're like, okay, it does have those benefits, even though the property certainly is not ideal, right? It's so vertical. There are cliffs here, right? I, I, I really worry about, you know, would an animal ever slip on ice and fall down a cliff, right? We've got to figure out fencing into rocks, stuff like that. Mm, really, wow. it's really going to be challenging over the next five years. But in coming to Tennessee, it did eliminate some natural disaster issues that that we're seeing. I mean, we spent summers and summers either helping people evacuate, being on our own roof, hosing it down as burning embers are falling on our roof. The house wow. that we sold in Washington uh, had to be evacuated last year for fire. So that was a big deal in coming to Tennessee was, can we manage natural disaster? Uh, you're talking to a climate refugee, so I totally get it. I, when I was moving out of LA, the fires were blazing in the background, so I feel you. Yeah, you understand, like the surreal nature of like waking up and the sky looks strange and the clouds, and, I mean, I was and the air quality is terrible. Yeah. Like it's well, there's all that, Jasmine. But but just imagine this, right? I can't put my mind there, really, that you wake up and there's a fire five miles away 
and you're looking at 200 animals out in the uh, and you can't get them away. Yeah. We're wow. We need to remove ourselves from that because imagine the guilt if tragedy did strike. Unreal. And we had two chihuahuas and a cat and we're like, how are we going to get them out? (laughs) (laughs) And also as someone in the same age group as you, I have to say, you're like, oh, lifting the hay gets harder and harder. And I'm like, lifting my chihuahua is getting really hard. (laughs) So I get it, man. I feel like we're very similar. We're in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. So there wasn't like, like there wasn't a recipe for how we were going to move from one place to the other. The best we could do is sort of structure this loose framework of, okay, this is how we think it's going to go down. This is the algorithm of things that can go wrong. And then, and then they did. (laughs) And then they did. They did. They were wrong. Every one of them, right? Every one of them, whether it was broken vehicles or we hired a transport company just for one of our transports and that went terrible. So then we spoke all of the animals ourselves because we simply did not trust for someone else to move the animals. We ended up in St. Joseph, Missouri at 2 a.m. Oh my God. Broken wheel, raw as well, the completely dangerous dog with us in the cab and- the trailer connected with, with six, our bigs. With six big pigs. Five hundred pounds plus. Oh <laughs> my god. Right? We and had to get we had to get towed off of the side of the road, a huge diesel dually and a trailer full of pigs. I mean, can you imagine? I'm like, I'm no. not leaving this truck. I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when no kidding. Cart of like the fruits and veggies delivered to the repair garage for breakfast. The guy is like are you really going to feed 800 pound pigs breakfast? Can I watch? And, yeah. and like it started a conversation, oh. you know what I mean? But I'm, Oh my God. I, I want to throw in before, even though this is kind of a tangent, before we go any further and I, I get any chance to forget. Yeah, yeah. Our support crew and what we called our animal care crew is the key to us moving quickly and successfully. Yes. Whether that was Dana, our friend who picked up her entire life and towed her tiny home here. So she, oh, wow. So she could work seven days a week because remember a trip for me was race back to the Northwest, three days, catch a nap, and then buddy drive straight down to come back. So the turnaround was six to seven days, no matter what. And so Wendy still had to work because we needed way more money than we ever thought we needed. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, we had broken trailers. Tractors were broken here, Uh, which then also meant that our crew in Washington, exactly people that I talked about, they were running the sanctuary in Washington while we were doing the move. Wow. And I was the mom of the farm, and I kept the kept the wheels on the cart as far as logistics of moving, keeping vet appointments moving, CVIs for animals, blood draws done on time, helping Josh with his like transport back and forth, helping him with finding repairs for broken things on the side of the road as he was traveling. I mean, it was a lot to manage. It was a lot. And I look back now and I'm like, I don't really know. How I wouldn't do that again. I'd never, never. No way. <laughs> No way. So difficult. And, and so it's really important How- to to recognize that our our family, right? I mean, Wendy and I don't have kids. Our animal care crew is what made that move at all. Possible, yeah. 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 That is a really beautiful reminder that it takes a community in so many ways. And I just have a couple more questions for you. I guess first I am curious. If you were to go back to yourself sort of at the beginning of this process and offer one bit of advice, what would it be? 
at the beginning of starting Odd Man In. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Very yeah. Our biggest mistake, I think, was that we did not volunteer at sanctuaries. We just didn't have that visual, like, like mindset of what it was to run an animal sanctuary. Hmm. And, and honestly, if we always say this to people, you think you want to run an animal sanctuary, volunteer at one very regularly, learn all the ins and outs, not just the names of the animals, but learn about the fundraising, learn about marketing, about dealing with social media, dealing with the secretary of state, bookkeeping, like all of that really unsexy stuff that goes into running a legitimate organization. Mm -hmm. And that alone maybe would have scared us into having two chihuahuas and a cat. (laughs) (laughs) It can be a lot of work. I'm just saying. That was sort of our biggest mistake from the very start is we just didn't do enough research. We fell into running an animal sanctuary just because we loved animals. And when we were in a little over our heads is in terms of like, wow, we got a lot of animals. We're going to have to figure out a plan. We went down the route of running an animal sanctuary without thinking that more would come and more would come and more would come and that it would continue building on itself. And now it has grown into this organization that has a life all of her own. And I think that we could have controlled some of that if we had educated ourselves from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instead of educating ourselves as we're as we're yeah. growing. Yeah, the phrase that we use is that we are, uh, as, especially down here, we're building a plane as we're flying a plane. We're still designing a plane. Oh, that is no okay. way to let. And one thing that really helped us after we had become odd man in, and we were learning. Right, the learning curve is very steep. I had given and followed Best Friends Animal Society in Cab, Utah for mm-hmm. years. And mm-hmm. we were like, oh, they put on a how to start an animal sanctuary conference. course, a conference. And we didn't really have any money because we we're putting it all into our animals at home. They do it in the summer. So things are kind of cheap and slower. So I went down there in this Toyota Previa van that didn't have air conditioning that <laughs> camped out in the desert and <laughs> went oh my God. conference. But not only was the conference helpful, the support from best friends after being able to email their founders with things like this is going on. Have you had this happen before? Or even good things like the first time we got a $10,000 donation. We're like, how do we say thank you? Right. Call best friends. Like what's the right way to say thank you. And they were so generous with their, just with their knowledge, with their here, we'll share these documents with you. So you can see an example of how this works. Oh, you need to talk to an attorney for a little bit of advice. Like let us connect you with somebody. Let us help you with that. It was, they were really, really gracious to us. And the bar pretty high for how we want to be as an organization, as we grow, that we want to share what knowledge we have, share what experience we have with people, mm-hmm. like record that knowledge and watch other people flounder. Like, mm-hmm. hang on, hang on there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can show you what has worked for us. Yeah. I want that to is like, so cool. Number one, if you're considering starting this, like we, we talk about for someone personally to go volunteer at one place so you can get deep enough into the business to learn that, right? But the other side of that is your infrastructure. If you're going to try to help an 800-pound pig, then you need to have the equipment to get an 800-pound pig to the hospital, right? It isn't always going to work with farm vets. They don't have the diagnostics that you necessarily need, right? And so one thing that 
we have caught up on, but we didn't necessarily start with, was our infrastructure for equipment and things that, that say, there's, I mean, we've had a case, right, where a pig that's well over 700 pounds can't get up, but we can get them on the slide, get them loaded in the trailer, and on the road within 15 minutes, we've done it. And hmm. we've worked hard on our infrastructure to make sure that we could do that from any place on our land, even with the verticality, right? And mm -hmm. so I think with huge hearts and the best of intentions, oftentimes people get into, okay, well, I'm going to take this one in. I'm going to take this mm -hmm. one in. I'm going to take this one in. And then it's a real pinch when it comes to how are you going to be able to haul 1,200 pound hay bales, right? How yeah. are you going to get that huge animal to the hospital? What are you going to do to truck water to those animals when it's below freezing? Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's great advice for anybody who's thinking about starting a sanctuary. And I know a lot of our listeners mention it from time to time. So, and I love, we're not there. Like have them call us. Well, I mean, Oh, I love, that's so nice. I mean, you're paying it forward. I love to hear how best friends supported you in that way. Thanks. Again, to the power of community. And we really need each other in this community in particular. So I have one more question for you before we get into our bonus content. And, you know, with everything you've seen, and everything you continue to see, what gives you hope? And I will offer this disclaimer that I, I asked someone that question recently and she was basically like, why are you assuming anything gives me hope? So I will say, if something gives you hope, what gives you hope? <laughs> well, let, me, let me take my Robert Smith cure shirt off and get on a sad mode. And... <laughs> I think uh, what gives me hope is seeing how enthusiastically people, even meat eaters, are willing to connect with animals. Yeah. And they, they're there, right? They are people on our social media that they're people that are donors here, long-term regular donors here who know our animals by name. They know their personalities. They know their stories. They ask about them frequently. They are still in touch with that part of their like inner psyche, whatever you want to call it. They have not lost that ability to have some degree of empathy with animals of different species. And that is what gives me hope literally on a daily basis. When I feel frustrated by a million different things here, if I, if I really watch the connections that are capable between total strangers and animals who I have literally, I've just shared their story online. I'm not embellishing. I don't need to make it dramatic. I don't need to add a lot of fancy filters and gifts and all mm -hmm. that stuff online. If I just share the pureness of their story and the pureness of their life, people yeah. are still able to connect with them. And that is what I really try to capitalize on when I am talking about the animals here at Odd Manion. Mm, beautiful answer. Josh, do you, yeah, do you want to weigh in? Got it twofold, but I'll, I'll keep it short as I can. Walmart. Walmart gives you <laughs> oh, Right? Whoever, okay. Yeah, right? This was not an answer I have ever in 13 years of doing this yeah. and probably... Have, a thousand times of asking this question, I have not heard Walmart, but do tell. Yeah, so uh, I'll challenge you wherever your local Walmart is to take stock of what they are selling currently for vegan and plant-based items, and then go back in a few months and see what they're stocking. 
and they are recognizing that there is a market. Our town has 1,800 people, and every week there are more products at Walmart. And sometimes I go in there, and I said to one woman, I was like, you're not going to take that last package of Guardian chicken strips, are you? <laughs> I was gone. I'm like, oh, you know what I mean, right? The stuff is selling. It isn't just like Josh and Wendy are are supporting Walmart's plant-based initiative, right? We're seeing right. that. And we're seeing on the labels, right? So when I was a kid, Country Crock came around and it was like the alternative to butter. But now what are they calling themselves? The first plant-based spread, right? V8 has started calling themselves the first fully plant-based drink, right? Or the original wow. plant-based drink. And I tie that in with the fact that a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, Years and years ago, she had married into a four-generation dairy, back where I'm from. And she never liked it, but it was uh, the family that she had, and it supported her kids and going to college. And we talked for years, and it wasn't my discussions with her that necessarily changed this into happening. But recently, they closed the dairy, and they started selling organic pumpkins, hemp, and collecting solar power. And they're making more money than they've ever made. Wow. Now, our discussions with groups like that can't just be shut down your dairy. Our discussions have to be, I, as your citizen brother, want you to succeed, and I want you to do better than you're doing now, not on the backs of animals. Right. right? And the right. fact that when we left Washington, people were giving up their grazing leases to buy to sell leases for solar and wind collection yeah right and those guys those landowners are admitting that they're making more money that's so cool walmart <laughs> that is so cool i love your spin on that and i see how you're able to do this work in a way because you do have you both have very good attitudes and and we balance you know, each other right we're very different personalities we have really different perspectives on the world and on life we're from different areas of the country but we really balance each other and, and other same as well right i think it's important jasmine i really want to try to get this in there if we can we all have our days where we wake up and we want to swing a crowbar right at the world and be like, listen, this makes sense. Everybody has those angry days where you're like, yeah, this should be so easy. I right? didn't realize he woke up so intense in the morning. What we cannot do is give the world that side. If our only view to ourselves as a movement as an organization and a community is anger and finger pointing, then what happens is people say, I never want to be like those guys. They seem miserable. Yes. You have to balance our intensity and our passion for this, right? I mean, this is our moral basis in what right. we believe in. But we also have to bring to the world the fact that, and we're fun. We're adjusted people, we're fun people, we're tofu eaters that you want to hang out with, right? Because if the entire world views us as people they'd never want to be around, we're going to have a lot harder time with convincing people to make those changes. 
Well, that is a beautiful and powerful way to end. But tell me how our listeners can find you online and support your efforts. Oh, gosh. Well, we're pretty easy to find. It's Odd Man Inn on everything. So it's Instagram. It's at Odd Man Inn. If uh, you want to join us on Patreon, it's just patreon.com slash Odd Man Inn. And our website is oddmanin.org. Very cool. Well, please stay on with me for the bonus content because I want to dig a little deeper. But thank you both so much for all that you do to change the world for animals and for caring so deeply and for situating yourself in such an accessible way. I think that's just really inspiring. And I really enjoyed chatting with you today. So thank you. Thank you. We're really grateful for the opportunity to share our story with your listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for being a kind interviewer. Yeah. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from Amanda Radke from the Radke Report. Animal rights radicals pinning farm locations on a map. She's actually pretty late to this story because it started happening a long time ago. First, she talks about having seen a drone once on their uh, quote-unquote farm where they raise animals to be killed. Shortly after that, she's got an quote-unquote interesting call. It was from a vegan animal rights activist going to college at George Washington University in D.C., and he wanted to interview me for a paper he was writing. The paper was about ag-ag laws, which she describes as the protections that were set in place in many areas to safeguard livestock operations from undercover videos being taken by employees gaining access under false pretenses, which is actually a fairly accurate description of what an ag-ag law is. She doesn't mention that almost all of them have been ruled unconstitutional (laughs) as interfering with people's First Amendment rights. But but yeah, it kind of is what they're about. Uh, So they had this long interview, and then he mentioned that he was also getting information from animal rights activist groups, including direct action everywhere. If you aren't familiar with these guys, she says, you need to be. They are a radical extremist organization that frequently uses terrorist tactics, such as breaking into hog barns, stealing animals, and taking drone footage for use in dramatized fundraising videos. They believe in animal liberation, and their members have actively participated in what they call open rescues, where they steal pigs, goats, turkeys, and chickens, and then are put in trial and are actually acquitted of stealing them, <laughs> or at least that's what happened in the most recent one, as you well know. But yeah, we, we ignore, the, we ignore the, the inconvenient facts here. And then she just wants to familiarize everybody with this thing that's, like I said, it's been going on for a while, but if you're not familiar with it, you should check it out. It's called Project Counterglow. It's at counterglow.org. And its aim is to identify the location at the exact locations of livestock operations across the country. It's actually not just livestock operations. Well, I guess it is. I guess it is. If you're including chicken in livestock, I don't know whether people do that or not. But, uh, you know, and actually, it's a good thing to check out 
one reason is that you'll be shocked because there are a lot of them. And, uh, you know, they're probably right near where you live. And two, if you are familiar with any uh, places that, that raise animals for slaughter or, or you know, whatever, uh, I actually even saw a racetrack on there. So it has a pretty wide definition of what it can include. You can add them. Uh, you know, you might be able to improve this map. It's got gazillions of them. As she points out, 27,500, which is, you know, a sad commentary of how many facilities are out there abusing animals. But there you go. She wants uh, her readers, which she doesn't understand includes me. She wants to encourage them that if we don't start sharing our positive stories with the general public, then it is likely consumers will fall prey to the predatory and sensational messaging of radical groups like this one. I mean, Project Counterglow just tells you where they are, <laughs> I guess. I guess that would be uh, sensational. I don't know. Uh, you can find it at counterglow.org. From our friends at Plant-Based News, vegan meat brand displays its own troll comments on 2200 tube cars in London. This is really cute. <laughs> I like these people. This is from some company called VFC. And they make uh, they make vegan chicken. What they've done is they've taken some of the comments they got on social media to just be part of their new advertising campaign entitled "Would You Rather." So, in response to the this is you know in, in subway ads or tube ads, uh, in response to the question "Would you rather eat VFC or, for example, Wayne from Facebook responded that he'd rather stick a wasp up his bum." <laughs> it's fairly graphic. Poor wasp. Poor, poor wasp. Another one was, I'd rather eat dog poo covered in breadcrumbs. I'd rather eat my dog. So these are accompanied by absolutely delectable looking pictures of the food, of course. And uh, I think it's pretty funny. Uh, as the head of marketing there said, the levels of outrage around the concept of vegan meat alternatives is astounding and slightly bemusing. But on the other hand, the material was just too good to ignore. So, you know, thank you to everybody out there for writing your writing the advertising copy for these folks. Our next story is also from Plant-Based News. This one is kind of raising my anxieties and, you know, probably raising yours as well. You're probably already familiar with some of this. Warning bell, pandemic fears sparked as avian flu spreads to farmed mink. And, you know, there have been a, a bunch of stories recently of how avian flu, the latest avian flu epidemic is spreading to mammals. It just takes a few steps to spread to humans and start the next pandemic. And, you know, it's pretty hard for it to do that, but we give it so many opportunities, just constantly, constantly giving it opportunities. So this this has to do with uh, the first discovery in mink, which, are, of course, are also factory farmed. So also, if the disease does spread to mink, it's going to be very easy to spread amongst mink and then to mutate there. I mean, the whole... The whole issue is creating opportunities for the virus to mutate by putting it in many, many animals, which is, of course, what factory farming is designed to do. Well, it's not designed to do that, but it's it could should be because that's very effective at doing that. So this it was discovered last October in uh, first in Spain yeah, at a mink farm and since then has spread. I saw an article just yesterday about how it has spread to cats. I mean, so far, I don't think there have any instances of cat-to-cat -cat transmission. So that's the first step. It spreads from birds to another animal. But it doesn't necessarily mean those animals can catch it from each other. They can only catch it from birds. Then if it mutates more within those animals, and of course, as I said, mink farms are a perfect place for it to do that, it can start spreading from mink to mink. 
then it can mutate to spread to other animals who happen to be around, like cats, if they're if they're in the area. But that doesn't mean it can spread from cat to cat. That's another step. And then, you know, of course, uh, sooner or later, uh, the possibility, the probability is that it will spread to humans. I mean, it has before spread to humans. Humans have gotten bird flu. It has not yet developed the ability to spread from human to human. When it does that, that's when we're completely and totally fucking screwed. So here, the researchers said that the virus found in mink carried a mutation to the PB2 gene, which was similar to the one found when bird flu jumped to pigs in the in the late 2000s. Jumping to pigs, I, I remember that epidemic. And, you know, there were definitely stories about it having spread to uh, humans. But uh, those stories really, really got covered up. It was very dangerous. That particular iteration of the virus was very dangerous to pregnant women. And so uh, that did happen. It started with birds, then jumped to pigs. That's the usual trajectory of a flu. Though this article generously said that avian flu's risk to humans remains very low, there is currently no indication that this has changed. Experts have repeatedly warned that intensive farms like these could act as incubators for the virus and increase the likelihood of it mutating to spread among humans. Well, exactly. Like, you know, it's like we're designing these places to, to kill ourselves. This H5N1, which is the current bird flu and the bird flu that's been floating around for many years, was first detected in 1996, and um, that was at a goose farm in China. You know, it keeps getting worse, and the latest outbreak of the illness has been the worst ever, with millions of birds either being culled or dying from the disease in the last year. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Anybody doing anything about it? Doesn't sound like it. So my anxieties are rising it just doesn't seem fair that vegans can get this, but we sure can. Uh, otherwise, you know, maybe everybody else would die and only vegans would be left. And I'm not suggesting that would be a good thing. Don't, don't tell me that I suggested that because I didn't. I know there are many people, many people whom I love and many people who you all love and who, who are not vegan. And anyway, you know, as bad a mood as I get into, it's seldom that I want to completely wipe out the human race. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.